Bust out your GPS because we are going on a road trip this week here on Kicking Out at Two as we cover some of the most famous cities in the history of professional wrestling. Cities that have produced some of the biggest talents, the greatest matches and moments, as well as some of the most famous arenas in professional wrestling history. And joining me on this journey, this geographical trip down memory lane, is my cousin, Wild Bill Brown, joining me once again. Welcome. You're the driver today. I'm the passenger. I'll tell you the stories. You ask them, and then you embellish on anything you want. I like being in the passenger seat. Dude, I got no problem with it, man. I got no problem with it. Um, I, I asked you to be a part of this, like I asked you all, like I asked you, you know, for our SummerSlam show, which, by the way, is the most downloaded show in the early history of Kicking Out at Two over at SoundCloud.com. You can check that out in the archives. Our SummerSlam 1993 review. We took a, a road trip in a sense with the Lex Express heading into that year's SummerSlam in 1993, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you are, like I said, a wealth of knowledge. You have a, a, an extensive background in the wrestling business, traveling up and down the roads. I'm sure you've been to a number of these cities that we're going to be talking about today, um, from being a fan to, you know, driving wrestlers and your work as a referee and other things you've done in the wrestling business. But um, to start things off, um, tell me you uh, – t- give, give me give me your, your description of what describes a, a, a good city to host – a professional wrestling event. Well, a good city to host a professional wrestling event is a city where the fans are going to come to every week. But you also got to start off with the promotion of the event, the, the talent involved, um, how they're getting exposure. How much? You know, it depends on a lot of different factors. For instance, we'll look at maybe Memphis. Back in the early uh, late seventies, early eighties, it was a small time promotion, but it was a hotbed, and they sold out the Mid South Coliseum. Why? Because the fans are into Jerry the King Lawler and they were into Bill Dundee and all the people that were down there and well beyond before that. So if you could continue to make television local and make the people want to go to the buildings, they'll continue to support the product. You bring it on a national scale and you've got to just now you have people wanting to watch because something big has come to their area. So you bring in the names. It just depends how it is. Some towns just don't do it, and uh, you know we might talk a little bit about that too. No matter what you do, you just can't get wrestling fans in a, in a rural, slower area that doesn't have good promotion and strong TV than a big population. But big-time cities, New Orleans, Dallas, Texas, L.A., Portland, we're going to talk about a lot of these cities, Toronto, you name it. Um, there's things that have happened. And it's been interesting as a, as a wrestling fan for the last you know number of decades to to see these things. We're going to talk why uh, things worked and maybe even why some didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nowadays, you know, like you said, it's more national. Um, but back back in the, the as I'd like to say, the heyday or even in the territory days, um, big moments took place in cities that not everyone saw those particular moments take place because of the territory system, because of the way television was structured in the wrestling business. You know, you had, um, there was there was the early infancy of cable television, but for the most part, the wrestling that you saw at, you know, the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis or at the Sportatorium in Dallas, you saw that from your local television station or if you bought a ticket in that area to see the shows. Nowadays... You, you know, obviously we're in a digital age. It's, it's a completely different era. You can catch you can catch it anywhere from 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 any platform, whether it be, you know it be television or streaming devices and services and things of that nature. So it's definitely um, the 
the reach in terms of uh, the viewing um, wrestling has definitely, you know, grown by leaps and bounds in the last, uh, you know, number of years. But let's get let's get started on this road trip as we're going to uh, we're going to head north to the great white north of uh, Canada. And we're going to touch upon uh, Toronto and Calgary, Toronto being in Ontario and Calgary being in the province of Alberta. Um of course, when you think Calgary, you think of the Hart family, the famous uh, Stu Hart dungeon, producing uh, a load of talent. Um, not just you know his his his, uh, his sons and his son son in laws, but um, names like Brian Pillman, superstar Billy Graham, Bad News Allen. Uh, you know, of course, we talk about Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Jim the Animal Hart, Davy Boy Smith. Uh, the stampede wrestling territory in there that made Calgary such a hotbed. Uh, you, you, you knew of, when you thought of Calgary, you obviously first thought of Stu Hart and the impact he had on that territory with his promotion in Calgary. But um, surprisingly enough, Bill, and you could attest to this, a lot of guys that you wouldn't think went through Calgary actually did and really planted their foot in the wrestling industry. Elaborate for me. Well, there's quite a bit. Jake the Snake, Roberts, uh, Junkyard Dog. These are people that were up there in uh, Calgary and training with with Stu Hart in the dungeon. The, you know, this it's very tough to remember all of them, but yeah, um, I think the Stomper, the Archie Goldie was yeah. was there. There's so the many. Mongolian you Stomper. would never believe that yeah. a guy like that would have would have put himself up in a position to go into, into the, the dungeon mm-hmm. and learn from Stu. But look look where it took him in his yeah. career. He went, he went in and he made a great career down in the, in the Tennessee area and up north. And So there's there's many other people, and of course we know the current ones. I think the last student that probably ever went into the dungeon, from what I'm hearing, is, uh, is just incredible. He was one of the last ones okay. that actually yeah. went through the actual uh, dungeon training. And I'm sure a few others here and there, but uh, it's it's amazing to, to hear the stories, and they're true. Yeah. The things you hear, the the way uh, Stu would just break these people, and he had uh, he had Calgary in the palm of his hand. Is the whole Hart family was known worldwide, and the talent would come from uh, England, Japan. Yeah. They 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 travel in and do tours down there. And uh, there's some big names. Yeah. You know, I think Jushin Thunder Liger began his career. Really? Without his mask. Holy cow. I never knew that. Yes, he was there. Wow, in Calgary. Holy Mm -hmm. shit, that's cool. That's why I have you on for stuff like this. Because you you, you can just blast this knowledge out that I didn't even know. That's so cool. Continue. That's really, I mean. Mike Shaw. Malcolm Singh. Bastion Booger. A guy you would have never thought. Norman the Lunatic. You would have never, ever thought that. Seeing him in, a, in, a, in his outfits in the states as a gimmick for all those things that you just said, he was a top ten worker back in the day. His matches at Owen Hart Owen were, were Hart, incredible. Yeah. A great promo, knew where to go. His, his timing was awesome. His matches were even good. And then you, know, you would never know that he was a huge star, North American champion for a long time. There, pretty much headlined the territory, made a lot of money for Stu. Really, and it was during the eighty-eight, eighty-nine era. Uh huh. So um, there, there's a lot of different people. That was after Brett had gone up north to yes. Vince, right? Yeah. Once, uh, really, the city with, the situation with Calgary is in 1984, I think the sale had happened. I think Vince offered Stu payment plan for, what, a million a year for 10 years uh-huh. to buy the territory out. And to, uh, the promise was, okay, if you want my television, you want to take over the area, 
you have to take the Dynamite Kid, Davy Boy Smith, Jim Neidhart, Bret Hart. Yeah. And I, I don't know if there's somebody else involved, but um, take them and, and make, give them a feature in the promotion for a number of years and pay me the million dollars, and that was done in 10 years. Of course, Vince reneged after the first year. Stu, after a few, was allowed to reopen the territory, but it was never the same because the talent now was in WWF at the time and making big names for themselves in the tag team division. And, you know, really, th- those were the days when the tag team wrestling started taking off when the Hart Foundation and the British Bulldogs yep. really came into play in, in uh, 86 and 87. And, you know, even 1985, first WrestleMania, the Bulldogs are, were, they weren't there, but the second WrestleMania, they were in uh, Chicago. Yep. There, there's just some uh, things that, that happened from that territory that you see now affected the way the business is. And it's too bad that Stu couldn't get it back, but he lost the grip and yeah. they ended up cashing in on that. Yeah, they also produced, uh, you know, like you said, it was like, I want to say like 89, you said, that was when, you know, that territory was starting to slowly decline. But you had, you still had like Brian Pillman. That's yes. where Brian Pillman got his start. Came back in uh, 88, I think, and uh, uh, it ran into 1989. And it was pretty hot at first. And the names were there, like you said. And uh, Bad Company was, yep. was there. Brian Pillman and Bruce Hart were a tremendous team. But um, by 1990, I think, and I'm going to be maybe off a few years uh-huh. on some of these territories because I don't have all the knowledge in the world of professional wrestling. Yeah. But um, it ended again because they couldn't afford to, to keep it running. Yeah. They've tried a number of years to really revive Calgary, even like up until like a few years ago. I know that like Bruce Hart has you know, really been the one that's been spearheading the, the Stampede Wrestling revivals over mm-hmm. the years. Um, one of the, the most memorable moments coming from Calgary for me as a fan was the In Your House Canadian Stampede pay-per-view where in 1997 you had the Hart Foundation, the faction of Brett Owen, Jim the Anvil, Davey Boy, and Brian Pillman wrestling in the main event in a 10-man tag against Stone Cold Steve Austin, Ken Shamrock, uh, Gold Dust, and the Legion of Doom. Now, I remember ordering that pay-per-view when I was a kid and... Um, I didn't normally order like the in your houses, the, you know, I'd like to call them the in-between pay-per-views from the WrestleManias and stuff like that. But um, I remember for some reason I wanted this show and my parents let me order it. And uh, I was, that was the first time as a fan that I can recall that the audience really had a big impact on the overall presentation of the show and the city of Calgary itself and how, you know, they really um, used that USA versus Canada Heart Foundation versus the world kind of angle to really uh, beef up their storylines at the time when they were going head-to-head with WCW. But I just remember that moment where, like, the camera, you could see, like, the hard camera was literally shaking with the the people that were just so excited. Um, To me, that's probably... The, the, the top of the list when it comes to, you know, most memorable, mo- at least in my opinion, of, you know, Calgary and wrestling because it was just like at the height with the Hart Foundation in 97. Well, I watched that pay-per-view back in the day and, and um, like you said, you were allowed to order it probably because it was a two-hour show yes. and a cheaper yep. – I don't know. Twenty dollars, I think it was. It might even be cheaper than yeah, that. To tell you the truth, know, yeah. because it, it was a it was a monthly pay per view, and uh, I had no expectations. A ten man tag. What does that do for anything? Mm-hmm. You know, I I was never one big on on multiple tag team matches, but the timing is everything with the way those the heart of uh, family was together and all their family was at ringside. If you watch just the introductions of that pay per view, the for ten minutes the heart's coming out. 
the roar that you yeah. hear every single time music played and the people never sat down. No. And then the, Steve Austin is red hot heel and he'd be in the uh, red hot face, I should say, and he's being cheered as a as the worst thing going because yep. he's attacking the Hart family at ringside and, and sucker punching Bruce and everything else that's going on because Bruce, you know, at ringside that they always got to tease him yeah, a little bit. Get him involved. Yeah, give him a payday. <laughs> give Bruce a payday. So it was it was an amazing and the and the pop at the end when the Hearts actually got the victory was incredible. The family was in there and you saw a lot of children and yeah. the children of today that that are now involved in the business Teddy that were Hart, little kids. Tyson kid, Natalia, uh, yeah. Davy Boy's kid, yeah. and even Stu, of course, yep. and, and and Mom Helen. So those are memories. If you saw it, that really just you'll never forget them because it involves so much of the legacy of the Hart family from where they had been, where they were at. And even today, you could think of the people that are still involved, and and there's more to come, I'm sure. Yeah. So. I don't remember Calgary ever being a big wrestling town after that. I feel like after the the, the screw job and Brett's exit from the World Wrestling Federation, then eventually Owen Hart's unexpected passing, that Calgary just was never the same with the World Wrestling Federation and WWE as a whole today. I don't really see them traveling there very often at all usually canada is like a, a twice a year kind of loop for them and for whatever reason it's just not been as strong in in, in the last i would say five to ten years well it, that kind of transition to toronto yeah. of where the the, the capital is the, the sky dome was there and now it's the the what the, is it the rogers center rogers center say, yeah. so the the big crowds the mania events and then they also tore down there and do uh you know nitros and they did raws yep. and everything else so it all transitioned into that because there was so much more popularity and so much more going on there that that they they had the screw job and they had that happen so it made the fans in the area resent Vince McMahon yep. for doing and it turned him into the probably the the most successful heel in the entire wrestling business, yeah. bar none. Yeah, I don't care. You can sit there and go, Piper. Hulk Hogan, Piper, this, that. Yeah. It's like, man, since 1987. Yep. <laughs> it's like 87, has been yeah. <laughs> the biggest, yeah. or 1997, excuse well, me. Oh, no, I mean, 87, where yeah. he, he, he bought out the territories, he was right. a heel behind the scenes, too. He was, he <laughs> was. And then he started off in Memphis being a heel. Maybe we'll dwell on that a little bit later oh, on. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of where he got his, uh, his feet in the door. But 1997, if you want to talk about heels that drew the most money in the business, he had a long yeah. run and headlined a lot of manias yeah. against the top talent in the world. I and mean, you never over, you never look at that. You always think of the big champions and the stars of the era. But Vince, the money man, made the money. Yeah, you said <laughs> you, know, you said WrestleManias that had taken place in Toronto. They've done Raws. They've done some Nitros. Uh, one in particular, the um, the the you know obviously WrestleMania six, Hogan and Warrior, um, and then of course. In 2002, WrestleMania 18, with uh, Hogan and Rock. Uh, talk to me a little bit about those two shows, comparing comparing the two. Well, Hogan and Warrior was time to pass the torch, and uh, we didn't really know that back then. We we couldn't ever believe that Hulk Hogan would lose the championship. You know, even though he had lost it a few years back, he uh, or like a year before that, he came into uh, the match with the Warrior, and the Warrior was the Intercontinental Champion, and the ovation that that match had, it made that was probably the Ultimate Warrior's greatest match that he ever had. Really? 
because the way that they work together, the, the ovation, they just fed off the energy of the crowd. And that's something, I don't know what it, the popularity of Hogan in, in, uh, in Toronto is, is like, but back then he wasn't that popular because they wanted to see the Warrior win, even though they cheered him both badly. But when he fought The Rock, holy oh, yeah. cow, the enemy territory three. for uh, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, complete 360 there. I, and did you expect that? You So you don't know. Where, the bizarro world, where does it come from? You know, as they always would say, um, this crowd uh, is passionate to what they want to see. And that match with The Rock, again, it, it wasn't – if you watch it without the sound, it probably sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll never do that because you want to be excited. And, boy, what an exciting match that was. You know, it's funny you said bizarro world because I feel like today's wrestling fans um, – were uh, the way they are so fickle and picky about the product, especially WWE and especially a lot of these WrestleMania crowds, where they they like to hijack and kind of control the show with their with their their animated chants and things of that nature. I feel like they got a lot of that from Toronto. Yes. Um, and, and I mean, and Toronto, you could even go as far as back to saying like um, the Philadelphia crowds in ECW, and we'll get into Philadelphia in a little bit, I'm sure. Um, you know, oh, and for the record, by the way, before we go even further, because there are so many great wrestling cities, we're probably going to be splitting this show up into two parts. So, uh, if if we miss a city that you think deserves to be on this list, deserves to be in the discussion, don't worry. If it's not on this edition of Kicking Out of Two, it will be on part two of our famous wrestling cities in the very near future. But let's continue. Um, yeah, I just feel like the, the the bizarro world that Toronto, that that label that I think Jerry Lawler labeled it once at like a SummerSlam. But well, it, it all comes from Vince, but I think Jerry Lawler said it. Yeah, well, <laughs> Vince yeah, is on the headphones. Yeah, 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 Vince is the one calling the shots. But yeah, Lawler, it's always bizarro world every time they go there now, unless yeah. Vince says not. I mean, if you think about it, like any any time I look back, any time I look at the crowds nowadays, and like I said, how fickle they are, I always go back to Toronto because, mm-hmm. the, especially that WrestleMania with with Hogan, where, like, as a traditional wrestling fan and as a viewer, you were supposed to hate Hulk Hogan because he took a semi truck and he ran over the Rock a month prior in the, the back of an ambulance with a semi truck. Yet he lived. He, yeah, he lived. He came back with a band aid on his arm, and then and the, and then they have WrestleMania, and, and they the boom. Whole, yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like they wanted to see him get run over. I was like, holy cow! But it made you for everything that happened before that. The, the 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 crowd participation in Toronto that night made you forget about that horrible start, in my opinion. Well, to that to that storyline, it all it all began with you know the hearts uh-huh. and. Being, you know, they were cheered like crazy in Canada, and WWF was used to go there a couple times a year, like you said, and they had to justify the reaction. It's Bizarro World, yeah. And they labeled the Toronto fans as those types of fans. That carried over forever because they never forgot about the heel Vince McMahon. They never forgot about always being labeled as outcast fans every time the shows toured there. And they brought that in, and then they turned that into the the Hogan Rock match all the way through, and they yeah. still do it. But now everybody's doing it because a high ticket is going to get some of these fans that are involved in the show as exact as active as they want, and everybody cheers their favorites now. But it all stemmed from I think 1997, 1996 when the Hearts had turned heel, yeah, and and they were labeled. The fans were labeled on television as bizarre fans, and yeah. continuously for years and years. I think that made them want to be that way. 
I think too, like you said, like the, the, the screw job that kind of played into it as well. And not just fans in Toronto, but in like all over Canada, wherever WWE went, you know, Shawn Michaels still took a brunt of the heat, yep. even when he was supposed to be a good guy on TV, Earl Hebner, you know, Earl Hebner made a living off of basically, you know, screwing Bret Hart and being a part of that. And anytime they made it a point to go <laughs> to any part of Canada, whether it was Montreal where the screw job took place or Toronto or Calgary, they made it a point to bring up the screw job and incorporate it into that evening's show, um, which I thought first few times that's kind of cool. But you know that, even, that, that uh, joke got old pretty quick. Even Bill Goldberg, he tried to get there and, and they booed him right out of the building too in WCW. So that was the same evening. I'm glad you know what that 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 moment popped up in my head. That was the same evening where he speared Bret Hart and Bret Hart had the mm-hmm. the, the the metal plate, and that was probably. The greatest WCW moment Bret Hart ever had at that time, or uh, yep, virtually much. ever, yeah. Because everything else he did in WCW was was garbage. But you know, towards the end of WCW, they were trying to run more Canadian um, venues because obviously of Bret and his popularity. Yep. And unfortunately, you know, they didn't have the 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 stranglehold over that market like the WWE did at that time. Uh, moving on here on this on this uh, road trip, we. Uh, we go to Portland, Oregon, where uh, Portland has, is a city that has had um, a significant impact on a number of levels in the wrestling industry. Of course, Don Owens had the uh, you know Portland Wrestling Territory, uh, which produced uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, probably the biggest star to come out of Portland. Uh, but uh, Portland was also a city that had outlawed professional wrestling. Uh, at least the state athletic commission did outlawed professional wrestling for a number of years because of the um, the drug testing, and right. the WWF, and then which eventually became WWE. Uh, they didn't run Portland for a number of years until 2004 was the first time that they had ever run Portland, Oregon. Uh, but Piper, and we'll talk briefly about this. But Piper, um, like I said, biggest star to come out of Portland. Piper was so. Um, you know, he lived in that area. He loved Portland so much. He was he was loved by that 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 city. That even when the territories were in like its dying days, Piper still had a loyalty to the city and to Don Owens that he would still occasionally work there when he was not working for the WWF. Yes, Piper had a uh, kind of had uh, something on his side with, with Don Owens. He respected him and he told. No matter who the promoter was, I will not work in Portland against Don because of the way he brought him up. Yeah. And um, Piper was able to do that and even go on his TV shows. If you would watch some of the stuff from uh, the Portland Sports Arena or whatever it was called that they taped out of it every week, Piper would make cameo appearances. Yeah. And I'm sure Vince did not like that. <laughs> but, that was during his time with Vince. Yes. And, wow. and you you know, because I, ha- I used to get the, the videos back in the day of all these territories that we we're going to talk about, yep. every single one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd see Piper show up on there, and, and he'd go up to, to Beetlejuice uh, Art Bar and endorse him on the TV show. And you, you'd scratch your head and go, what's he doing? Yeah. It's Roddy Piper. Wow. From the, yeah, he's, he's a heel. He's a face. What's he doing on this show? Yeah. He's doing an interview talking about a local business with Don Owens down the road. So Piper pulled a ravishing Rick Rude before <laughs> it was popular. And what I'm referring to is obviously is when Rick Rude was on both Raw and Nitro the same evening in, in 1997. But, wow, that's very interesting that uh, 
He was he would just even while working for Vince. And I read Piper's book. I don't remember seeing that in, in, in Piper's book. That's uh that's very interesting. Uh as we move along here, Portland, like I said, a little stop on the uh, the, the road trip. Uh, but we make it to the Bay Area in San Francisco, California, the Cow Palace, um, which is wow. a building that has a lot of character. But um, a city that is most mostly remembered for producing the 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 Samoan dynasty, the Anawai family, and the Mayavia family as well. Um, but also Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens making their mark in San Francisco. Um, I remember hearing stories from Pat Patterson about working the main event against Peter Mayavia and the 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 local um, islanders in the area oh, yeah. would come to the shows and and. Patterson would need about 30 or 40 cops to get him to the ring because they wanted to kill him before Maya Villa ever had a shot in the ring to do it. Um, and that's all true stories. There's no exaggeration. Yeah. Those boys thought that this was for real. Yeah. I mean, most of those Samoan wrestlers they weren't smartened used to, up at all on this. Used to call, you know, used to cause riots depending on what the finish was of a match. You know, it was just, it, it, it was fascinating in doing my research. And, and the Bay Area seems to be like the hub for like the Samoan wrestlers. Obviously, you have nowadays, you have a Roman Reigns, and you have the Usos, but you also got to remember the late Umaga, uh, Rikishi, uh, Headshrinker Samu, the Tongan Kid, the Afonsika, the Wild Samoans coming from the the Bay Area. Yokozuna. Yokozuna, another Rodney on the late Yokozuna, Rodney on Hawaii. Um, yeah, I mean it was uh, you know the, the when you when I think of of, of San Francisco. Um, I look at, you know, the Samoan heritage that really is entrenched in that territory, in that city when it comes to pro wrestling. But I also think of that building, the Cow Palace. And I've heard it's referred to as like one big giant dump. Like it's it's a shitty building. It looks like it inside and outside. Yeah. But it's produced some great wrestling memories, even up until, you know, in the, the later years, way past the territories, like, you know, the, the Super Brawls from WCW. New Japan just ran a show there recently, uh, not too long ago, and long, you know, the main event, Cody and, uh, yep. and Omega. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, let's talk a little bit about the character of a building in a city like San Francisco and the Cow Palace. Well, I think that was the building that Roy Shire had a, a stronghold promoting, right? That yep. was his building, and he used to run the Battle Royal every year. It was uh, one of the most famous Battle Royals, 20-man, uh-huh. and uh, it was for a big, you know, whatever the amount of money was. and uh, The kayfabe money. Yep. <laughs> and it, it was uh, it was the biggest thing, and everybody talks about that, to, you know, even to this day, a lot of the wrestlers. But you had Pat Patterson. You would get your Roddy Pipers. You would yep. get Pedro Morales. Yep. He he made over huge when he was down there. Um, there were so many people, and there was a the famous angle with Pepper Gomez and the ladder, and he jumped off it and got to his ribs. And, and then the things that had happened down there would always stick into just the areas um, the people in that area would only see because they'd run different angles with some of the talent that would move around because that was not one of the places where a lot of the guys would stay for a, you know, a number of years. They'd go on elsewhere, and they'd take those same angles that nobody would see and do it again in yeah. Texas, or they'd go up to Portland and, yeah. and do those things. So, uh, but, but San Francisco, the Cow Palace, is one of those buildings where I think it held like 2,600 or 3,000. I don't even think it's a big venue or 5,000. I want to say it's like five or 6,000 I know that people, yeah. The last time I, I remember seeing the size of that building was when, uh, I think it was Hulk Hogan versus Roddy Piper in Super WCW Bowl. when uh, yeah. he put Piper to sleep. 
Yeah. I mean, Piper put Hogan to sleep, sleep and uh, won a nine-title match. And I remember getting a, a big view of the building. I was like, not a big building, but it was sold out. So. Yeah. But it's something that, uh, you know, every every uh, area has their building for a territory that, that relies on uh, the gate. And that was the one that made Roy Shire all the money, even though it, it wasn't the biggest building that these venues had. Still did a hell of a job. I've heard stories that San Francisco, in terms of drawing, was regarded as, like, hit or miss. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one perfect example was in 2004 when... Eddie Guerrero wrestled Brock Lesnar for the WWE Championship at that No Way Out pay-per-view. The, sto- the, the running story that I've heard on numerous DVDs that WWE has put out is that they had a large walk-up of a uh, and a lot of Latin American fans to come see Eddie Guerrero main event this pay-per-view against Brock Lesnar for the WWE Championship. The area in and of itself, I, I, I've noticed in my years of watching um very heavy latin american market but also um very uh heavy in the asian market as well a lot of uh you know japanese wrestlers uh have worked a lot of the san francisco you know shows especially in the territory for roy shire um if i'm not mistaken uh didn't I want to say Peter Maivia's territory. Didn't they? Didn't those guys also work San Francisco as well? I believe so. Peter, yep. Maivia, yeah, they they did. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So the the impact culturally that San Francisco had to me, I find fascinating because I and and it's and it rings true to this day in a sense because you have. You know, the most recent WrestleMania out in the Bay Area was in the, the San Francisco, Santa Clara area, San Jose, whatever you want to call it. And um, obviously The Rock was a big part of it, but Roman Reigns being, you know, Samo- of Samoan descent headlining against Brock Lesnar. But they inducted Tatsumi Fujinami into the WWE Hall of Fame and got a lot of Japanese yes. press in the Bay Area for that. What is now? This is just me asking you, and if you don't know the answer, that's fine. But what is it about the that that Bay Area that has um, that that Asian culture that that that's associated with it? Because well, I'm th- not familiar with it myself. I think it's just the ge- geographic location of it. It is uh, the closest area from Japan. Yep. For Japanese wrestlers to come to the states, okay. So it's it's not a long flight because a lot of Japanese wrestlers used to go to Hawaii too, which is you know not that close, but it was on yeah. the way. So that's where you're gonna get if you're gonna get anybody from Japan, they were coming into the uh, that side of the of the West Coast to be there. So a lot of them did, mm-hmm. in fact, come down there. And I think that um, um, not what's his name there, Noki used to have a big part of the LA. Yeah. So his influence and and he was a. a, a What's the word? I mean, for him, he's he's a politician in the business, so to speak, because he always is negotiating for something to happen and getting everybody involved and mm-hmm. the promotions tied up. So he was a big part, and uh, his popularity had always been important. So they'd always use him on that side and, and get a lot of the connections over there. So I just think that other than New York, which you know, Anoki used to like to run before Vince kind of just said, "Nope, no more with the Japanese because we're doing our own thing." That's that's kind of where he was working out of yeah. with a lot and, of his guys, and you can see now too with with uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling's expansion into the United States, they've run primarily their shows out of California, San Francisco, Cal Palace, Long Beach, California, a couple of times. They're going to be in Long Beach, um, or they have already. I think they were just recently in Long Beach. They were just recently say. there again. Yeah, they were just recently there again. So, uh, but the popularity in there, uh, it was good as a first time novelty and a second time. But um, look what happens when they go to New York. They sell it out immediately. Yep. 
So um, that's it shows you that uh, even though they go to the West Coast, that even if they travel into New York, no matter where your territory is, New York's going to bring the most uh, people because of the way it's centrally just that's that's yeah. the hub yeah exactly yeah and, and, and trust me in this episode we will get into new york at some point here um all right here's another uh a, another city and another building that has some character we're gonna uh we're, we're, we're gonna leave california and we're gonna head to dallas texas and the sportatorium Famous for the Von Erichs and world-class championship wrestling. Now, I'll be honest with you, Bill. You know, my first experience of Dallas, Texas pro wrestling world-class was through the Bill After magazines. I never okay. saw world-class in its heyday from the Sportatorium with, you know, the Von Erichs and the Freebirds and the Iceman King Parsons and the, the, the Gino Hernandez's and names like that. My first experience of the Sportatorium was probably when Global. Oh, way after. Yeah, like yeah. 91, 92. Where, and, and now, I knew of the Sportatorium and what took place in those buildings if, in, during the world-class era through the magazines. But I never got to see it on television um, pretty much until... I want to say it was 2007 when I bought the Heroes of World Class DVD that came out. Before WWE did their own World Class retrospective, um, they had a Heroes of World Class DVD. They interviewed uh, Mickey Grant, um, Gary Hart. Um, I forget who else. There was, a, there was a number of different names that were part of that DVD as well. But uh, talk about a building with character. It was like the precursor to the the intimacy of the ECW arena. Well, if you want to talk about dumps, then we go right into yeah. that. And there's a lot more dumps that we'll get into. Yeah. But um, look at the images online and uh, the stories that the wrestlers had. It was just a dumpy building. It's demolished now. Yep. But um, in the early, uh, early 80s, it was hot. Yeah. And Fritz had some numerous wrestlers there and... He uh he took a lot of the, the talent. He, bought, he broke away from Paul Bosch, and uh, he started his own group. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you, from Harley Race going there to Ric Flair to, you can name the if you start naming wrestlers, you know there's a lot of them that have, have gone through Dallas. The paydays weren't that good. They used to always make uh, fun of Fritz for not paying the boys, the Von Ericks, you know how they covered up for him in the area. They were but they were legends. Yeah, and. They always were uh, the top deck, no matter what. You couldn't have any other faces on top, or else forget it, because Von Erichs were all going to be above. Um, but it was there as world class, and it, it went up till 1989, or, I believe, and that's when uh, Jerry Jarrett got his hands in because Fritz wanted to sell the territory. Yeah. But uh, Eric Embry was booking it for a while too, and he actually was living in the Sportatorium. As as a booker when really? he was there, yes, he actually hey, like a little in law apartment or something. Well, the the, the offices for uh, world class were in the building. Yep. They used to set it up in there. So, and if you ever you've seen the DVD, probably yep. um, that building, you know, it's it's, it's set up. You know, yeah. that's they were able to get away with it. But the memories are there. You could have a packed house with a rabid fans and the camera work. If you uh, recall, they'd be in the ring shooting. They used to actually take the, yeah. the cameras inside and walk right up to the guys while they're doing the headlocks and the rest holds and then get out of the ring when the action started again. Um, they did a lot of different things. The lighting was, you know, pretty normal. But it was it was a total dump. I've yeah. heard I've heard stories that, that 
that it was, you know, they, they would do their normal shows every Friday night. And they would tape, I don't know how many TV shows for on a Friday night. And... Two. It was two? Okay. So they would do so they would do a couple of tapings on a Friday night, but they would draw more than the local high school football because of course in Texas high school football is more popular than even professional football. To, Amazing. To, yeah. I mean it's it's wild the culture of what high school football is in Texas, um, to this day. And Dallas in the Sportatorium, from what I've heard, they used to outdraw a lot of high school football games. Like it was just, it was, it was unbelievable with the headlining of the Freebirds and the Von Ericks. But even different names, like I mentioned, Iceman King Parsons and his rivalry with Buddy Jack Roberts from the Freebirds with the hair match, and Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams. You know, like it, it, Jake the Snake ran through Texas. Well, if where I did say. Steve Austin come from? Dallas, but that was later though. He didn't go world class. He did USWA. If True. I'm not mistaken, right. right? Yep, you are correct. Yep. Yeah. So. So, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to step on toes and correct you here, but I, I was just, you know, doing my thing. But anyhow, um, yeah, so, I mean, the, they kind of had that, and you could probably attest to this, they had the, the Von Ericks and Fritz had that very, um, that local celebrity status in Dallas in the same vein that Stu and the Hearts did in Calgary. Would you would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's because... Uh, they were involved with uh, with the people, and they preached uh, a lot of religion. And they were, you know, you would think that they were your everyday, you know, normal people. Behind the scenes, totally different. You know, it's very unfortunate behind the scenes how they they got caught up in a lot of the bad antics that the wrestlers were involved with in the area. But um, yeah, that the Dallas was a huge territory, and it started from the sportatorium. But don't forget. It didn't end there. They would go no. to Reunion Arena and they would pack that place out and have Christmas Star Wars and Flair Carey would headline and sold out, you know, crowds and the Freebirds and the Von Erichs. Which set up the Freebird Von Erichs, yes. if I'm not mistaken. And that's right? what that's what electrified the territory is yeah. when that feud took place. And they were they would also do Fort Worth and they had their own TV show out of Fort Worth. So not only did you have world class in Dallas, they had a special show for Fort Worth and they had the big matches on there as well all the time and uh that tv's kind of tough to, to get but some people haven't what a great show um there was there's was a lot of different things that 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 tour did every week and it was every week that they ran and it's just amazing that that they went on for about six seven years and uh, it had its declines and its popularity rose here and there but they they did really good for uh for professional wrestling and they brought in some names and drew a lot Brody, of memories abdullah Brody was booking for a lot of it. Gary Hart yeah. was booking, and uh, Abdullah would come in. There's just so many people you could go on and on. Uh, they they had uh, scaffold matches, parade of champions, had forty thousand the people there. Shows, yeah. That, that's you know because of the the death of David Von Erich, it, it brought in so many people, and the title actually changed hands to carry on that show because of the big crowd. You know, Fritz got his way and. He was always wanting one of his sons and all of his sons, for that matter, to get the title, and it happened that night. Yeah. Carey won three weeks, but yeah. still. Yeah, he had it for three weeks, yeah. Unfortunately, he couldn't keep up with the schedule and other personal issues from what I heard. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you might remember this. Midnight Express? Absolutely. They ran through Dallas? Yeah, they were there for a couple of months, and uh, if you listen to Cornette's version, he he pretty much hated it down there, and you know you could you could understand that he don't like anything except his uh, his own stuff. Yeah, yeah. so they <laughs> they were down there a couple times. He knew he wasn't going to get over past the level they were at, and uh, 
I think they did about two, three tapings at least. And okay, I, yeah. I think on the on the the, the world class uh, the the DVD if, st- if people still own DVDs, um, I, I've gotten rid of all of mine. But uh, I want to say they had a match with uh, uh, Fulton and Rogers, the Fantastics. At one what point. a match! Yeah, they yeah. had. Yeah, I think it was like an outdoor stadium show, like a parade of champions yep. kind of show. But um, one individual that I didn't get to watch in Dallas that I looking back in hindsight watching some of his older stuff and being the sophisticated viewer I'd like to think I am now is uh, Gino Hernandez what could have been with Gino Hernandez had he not passed away Um, from what I hear there's actually a documentary that's being made it's going to come out very soon regarding um, the death of Gino and some of the other world-class wrestlers like Chris Adams and and others but Gino was a huge star Mm mm-hmm um, down there, he never got a chance to do anything else. the The story goes, and nobody's ever denied this story, but nobody could very they can't pinpoint it either that he was Paul, Paul Bosch's, Bosch's son. son. Yeah. Now, I'm almost of the belief that that's true. A lot of people are, but there's no proof for this. And even Paul, when you know, when when he found out the news, if you listen to a story from uh, I believe it was Bruce Pritchard, he said that Bruce was there when Paul was alerted that. Gino had died. Yep. The, it was a look that he couldn't believe that he saw. It was, you know, it, it was that look like, yeah. you know, this is my son. And I, believe he t- I believe he took care of Gino's mother. Paul Bosch took care of Gino's mother financially yes. after Gino had le- had, uh, had passed away. And I think that kind of mm-hmm. really um, fueled the, the fire with the rumors and on being the, uh, the father. The money that Gino made in that territory was more than, you know, for, for what they were doing. It was equivalent to any WWF wrestler yeah. up north, and and more so. And you know they would, they'd be main event, and they could get ten thousand dollars in their pocket for a show. Wow! So you put that in that high life that he had. You're and not talking the, way, the sportatorium. We're talking like the bigger. We're shows, talking like Houston. Dallas, Houston. Houston would yeah. be selling out. And, yep. And Gino was he was more than than uh, Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, and when he went to Texas, he, he, they still made a lot of money. But Paul Bosch is, the, is where he really made the most money in Houston. And uh, they would they would just kill it. He was main eventing, and he did Southwest. He did he did a lot of territories down there, and they, they drew some houses. Yeah, and and you know jumping off of Dallas here, um, you know the promotion like you said it had its popularity, but also its decline as well. Um, let's talk about Memphis because Memphis plays a big part in the end of really the hot run in Dallas with Jerry Jarrett, uh, buying out the, the, the Von Erics and world-class championship wrestling, and then basically rebranding it USWA. Yes. Um, and, and now you have a, a, a influx of, of people coming into Texas. You have Jeff Jarrett and you've got Jerry Lawler. And it involved a lot of what they want to do is unifying the because they had world class as USWA in Memphis, and they were getting involved. I think with Continental and AWA, they wanted to just try and get a big group together. So you had them coming into the territory with the intentions of expanding, and I believe the first thing they want to do is create a a unified champion, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, so they they went that route. Things were changing, and, and the, the Dallas crowd at first, seeing the new new people in the area, they were getting excited because they were seeing AWA champion Jerry Lawler taking on USWA champion Kerry Von Erich and title versus title matches. and they, they The hype was there, and they had begun uh, promoting 
for their first pay-per-view after a while, the Super Clash. So you had Memphis Wrestling every week for so many years. Now it's, you know, going into Texas and they they knew the history because that stuff the talent was not far away to travel to. They would do both areas sometimes. So now you got all this going on. It was exciting, but it ended up not going so well after a while because it just the talent had left after because you can't pay them. Jarrett was known for not be, being a big on the paydays. Yeah. Fritz before that wasn't you know given the big paydays. So it it all started to go downhill after and people like the Undertaker, Mark Callis, who was there in both of the areas, defected and names that the people were involved with that want to see. They had very quickly all disappeared from from the scene. So there was a falling out with Kevin Von Erich and Jerry Jarrett, if I'm not mistaken, right? That had happened, yes. Kevin um, and, and Jarrett. There's a lot of falling outs that had happened in that area, and it all involved the money too and the losses, and 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 then it took off and it, it went a different direction with another buyer. And you know, the, Jarrett didn't want it after a few years, so it ended up going into Petticino. Okay, and uh, it went back to where you were watching. Dallas wrestling and Memphis, yeah. GWF, which Global, we didn't cover yeah. about when we went into the, the Dallas area. So, and Petticino was involved in all this, and it didn't really last very long either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, you mentioned Lawler talking about you know being the unified champion, the the champion versus champion match with Kerry Von Erich at the the AWA Super Clash. But when you think Memphis wrestling, obviously Jerry Lawler is the first person that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about Lawler a little bit in his time in Memphis wrestling on our SummerSlam review show over in the archives at uh, SoundCloud.com. But probably the most famous moment, or should I say, the most famous angle in wrestling history to come out of Memphis Jerry the King Lawler Andy Kaufman absolutely and that's something that they kind of fell into because Kaufman had pushed the idea with Vince McMahon and there was just a laugh at that thought like Andy Kaufman wrestling harassing wrestlers get out of town so he went to Memphis and Memphis goes absolutely we'll make this work uh they they put him on tv they had him insult the south and had the soap in his hand all the time and say the redneck stiff. Yeah. Look at the money it drew. When they actually had the match, it, it wasn't much of a match. No. But he put him on his head and they ambulanced him out. And, and Kaufman was a, the greatest seller in wrestling history. Yeah. He took it all the way with the neck brace on TV the and everything. yeah. And they got on The Tonight Show. Yeah, David Letterman. Or David Letterman, excuse me. And yeah. that is something that still, when you when you see uh, the highlights of the greatest moments of the Letterman shows, that is one of them. Yeah, it's in there, yeah. So it, it got exposure, and uh, that brought in Jerry Lawler as a, as a name everybody knew. And notwithstanding the talent that went through the area, Hulk Hogan, and you'd seen all the, the matches and videos. He's punching Kamala, fighting Nick Bockwinkle, beat Kurt Hennig for the AWA title. He's fought all the, the names every single time they would come through the territory. Randy Savage, you name it. Rock and Roll Express got their start in Memphis, yes. right? So, we would bring him in and uh, he, you know, he'd squeeze him out after a while, but he he was a name very well known and, and that's how uh, the promotion kind of went with Lawler's headlining for, jeez, 15, 20 years solid. Yeah. He was around uh, with, you know, Pretty much when the Fargos were, were, were teaming with him or feuding with him at first, but they they gave him the acknowledgement and they started using him as the top guy, and he never looked back on that. He was always on top. Aside from Lawler being the top guy, if there was someone that, that probably could have um, not filled the shoes, but, you know, 
kind of kept the seat warm was Bill Dundee. Yes, um, he was a great talker, as was everybody in, in Memphis. Uh, Wendell, uh, not Wendell, Dutch Mantel yeah. was, a, was a great talker. You know, some of the guys, talkers that could actually, you know, work. Uh, but Lawler was the guy that, that had the, the gift in the ring, the psychology, the, the presence. package. Yes, and uh, his popularity, you know. It, I don't know what he did in his spare time. played a lot of softball, I guess, but uh, because you'd yeah. always hear about that. But he was a part of the community, and uh, everybody is. knew him. He still is. He yeah. could still try to run for mayor again if yeah. he wanted. I don't know if, his, if he could do it at this time. But, um, yeah, there's there's so much in, involved with uh, the Memphis wrestling that you could go to, and – and there's just there's probably still more to come just right now because of the time that we're in with cable and the way it is. There's still a wrestling show. Jerry Lawler's Memphis Championship still, Wrestling. He still has the footage, right? It's not on WWE Network. I know that. Well, he has he has the footage. I don't know if there's an agreement because they WWE Network has used some of it. Mm-hmm. But he still has a TV show, although when his son uh, passed away a few months ago, I don't know if it's resumed. But he was uh, showing all this stuff. He'd have guests on. The last show I saw was uh, he had Doug Gilbert on it. He had his son on earlier than that. So there's a lot of stuff that he's he's still doing in the Memphis area. And how many times they had reunion shows and they'd try to bring in Hulk Hogan or they'd always try to do uh, – they had the big show, I think, Fight Waller a few years back. Yeah. It was a big show in Hogan maybe. They tried to like recreate the Hogan yes. Andre kind of vibe in the Coliseum. Yep. Yeah. So the, the Memphis wrestling is always going to have something. Uh, there's always historic uh, moments that'll be remembered, and there uh, there's a lot of video out there now. Memphis memories or or something else. I think the that they brought out a video. It's really good. I forgot the name of it. Um, I think that the, if the Mid South Coliseum was uh, in business, uh-huh. it, it would be like the Cow Palace of today. It would yeah. it would still have good shows based on nostalgia. Yeah. And uh, they don't have that right now. The, the, the FedEx form is not <laughs> it's not no. worth booking because yeah. they can't afford a, any any kind of promotion down there. Yeah. Now, now, uh, just kind of to briefly, you know, put an end to the Andy Kaufman uh, Lawler feud. Do you think that 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 rivalry could have gone a little longer, in Memphis? Do you think it's one of those where, like, do, do you think Kaufman could have sustained the drawing power to be able to make the fans want to see? pay to see Lawler kick his ass longer than they did. I'm not sure about that, but mm-hmm. I, I, I would have given it a little longer, but after a while, I mean, you could, let's face it, uh, Lawler put him in his place whenever he got his hand on him. So, yeah. But uh, as an insult and instigator, I mean, look at uh, Jim Cornette's and Jimmy Hart's down there. They they, they did it for years. Mm-hmm. So there there was always room for uh, a good heel, but you know, was Andy, Hollywood probably needed him a lot more than than wrestling did, so I'm sure that he had to make a choice. And then he got sick after that, so his, yeah. his time wasn't really spent down there after. Um, if he came back once in a while, I think he could have drawn incredibly if uh-huh. he was able to come back after taking a little hiatus here and there. Um, he, he was a big part of what brought the fans to the area, and uh, if utilized more, yeah, he would have been something else. Now we're going uh, to skip a few here, and we're going to kind of shoot up North, um, we, we we talked a little bit about the South and Dallas, and we talked about um, Memphis here. Let's kind of go up north a little bit to a promotion and a city that some may argue was influenced in some ways with Memphis wrestling and the the very um, 
uh, what's the word? I'm trying to find the, the right word for it, but the 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 local the local feel to it. I'm talking about Philadelphia with ECW and Extreme Championship Wrestling. Before ECW became a big thing, Philadelphia obviously is a very blue-collar sports town with the Flyers, the Phillies, the 76ers, um, and their wrestling was very... Um, Philadelphia supported their wrestling, whether it be WWF at the Spectrum or at the Civic Center that you had the NWA. But then ECW kind of burst onto the scene locally and kind of gave that local flair, that that underground mom-and-pop shop kind of promotion and really, in my opinion, took Philadelphia... Um, and and this association with wrestling and like brought it up a whole nother level. I don't think people really recognize Philadelphia and pro wrestling as like a WWF city or an NWA Jim Crockett promotion kind of city. Uh, you have been to the ECW arena on a number of occasions. So talk to me about your experiences in the city of Philadelphia, the fans, some of your favorite moments in front of the camera, behind the scenes. This is probably the par- portion of this sh- this show where I'm going to be really fascinated, or I hope to be really fascinated, with what you can bring when it comes to Philadelphia. Well, how long is the show again? No. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you want. Well, the Philadelphia, you got to start off with, you know, where the crowd is itself. You watch old Spectrum wrestling shows from the, the late 70s and early 80s. The crowd, you know, they, they were cheering the bad guys back then. They were, they were not the standard... Um, same crowd that you would see anywhere else Uh and that kind of translated into uh with we're gonna go with ecw because they had a building that they became uh you know legendary it's it's called ecw arena it still is and that is a dump of course yeah it's been cleaned up a few times and there's new owners now here and there but um you know, you go in the back of it, and there's there's stray cats and dog shit all over the lot and everything else, <laughs> and uh, it's disgusting. It really is, and it's underneath the big uh, bridge, and but its location is yep. so simple. You go right off of the highway, and you're there. And there's there's Tony Luke's is famous, and the Spectrum's a mile away. So you have this area where it's very accessible for everybody to get into, and that's where the popularity comes from because everybody was able to go there. There was always big shows in Philadelphia for um, for any group because NWA was running there too. When uh-huh. WWF was running there, they had two different places that they'd go to. They have the arena, and then they'd have the Spectrum. So there's there's different things that had happened with ECW. They went through nineteen uh, early nineteen nineties with a guy named Todd Gordon who yep. began as uh, the Money Man and uh, booked uh, ECW. And then Eddie Gilbert was involved in it, and then Heyman kind of wiggled in there and got involved in it. You're playing to a, a crowd now that is, like I said, they're they're a little anti WWF, anti uh, good guy. They want to see better wrestling. They're tired of you know the slow plotting WWF stuff that they had seen all their lives. So you've got them doing things in Philadelphia with talent. Coming from out of areas, they'd bring in a Japanese guy from Japan. They'd bring in Kevin Sullivan and have a brawl around the arena. Abdul the Butcher. They were running stuff at um, Tri-State Wrestling with Joel Goodhart, bringing in some big names, Cactus Jack, jumping off a cage here and there. Yeah. So they're doing things that nobody 
is seeing anywhere in uh-huh. the United States at the time anymore. So the news is getting out, and it's going into New Jersey. It's going into all the tri-state area. People are traveling now, and I'm from Connecticut. I get wind of this. I'm going down there. I want to see what the heck's going on because nothing's. it's not on TV. I'm just hearing about this. Yeah. I'm seeing that, you know, the Sandman's blind and, you know, woman's with him. And I know woman from WCW and I know Kevin Sullivan. And I, I got to go down there. I know uh, Raven, Scott Levy. Yeah. So you're seeing all these names coming in now. And the brand was different. The blood was there. They're swearing on the microphone every time. Um they're breaking tables. Nobody's broke a table in WWF before. I didn't uh-huh. never seen anybody throw somebody on a table and jump off the top rope and leg drop them through it. Who's this Sabu guy? You know, so there was a whole different culture of wrestling down there, and it grew and grew and grew. And that building of uh, I think it fit twelve hundred people would sell out almost every single time, and it became one of the hottest tickets in town. The, when you'd go there, there'd be a line around the building outside, and the wrestlers be pulling in, and everybody be you know hanging out with them. And yeah. at the end of the show too, it's where you get your camaraderie. You go and get a, a Tony Luke sandwich. You wait in line an hour, but you know behind you's New Jack, and you know maybe Devito's over there too. They're all waiting with you, and you're talking about the show. Nice job, nice job. Yeah. So I, it's something where the fans, myself included, I had never experienced any interaction with many of the wrestlers like I did in Philadelphia because you'd go to the travel lodge because I'd stay overnight because I wanted to not, you know, not drive home after getting out of the building at midnight because the shows would run long. Four-hour drive. Right. So you go to the travel lodge and holy moly, (laughs) the stories you could talk about there, every wrestler would talk about it. I mean, Brian Pillman being there chasing people out of the elevator. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Just playing the character so well. You would see so you were much there for stuff. One of those? Oh yeah. <laughs> you can elaborate, dude. You I could, trust me. Go. He just give you that look, and people were like, "Get away from him! Yeah. Get away from this guy! He's crazy! He really is!" Wow. Well, that's what you thought. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, just just great stuff. Um, don't forget, it all went to a pay per view too. They kept saying, "We're you know they're too too uh, they're, there's too censored. They're, they're not censored enough for pay per view or something." So. Mm-hmm. They ended up having a pay-per-view. Now you got the crowd loving that. So Philadelphia was was unbelievable, the, the things that they would do. And, and they bring in outsiders, too, you know, from the Japan and everywhere. Yeah. And then their affiliation with WWF in the end, even though it was starting to go down in popularity, they, they'd bring in hot angles like Coronet and, and Jerry Lawler to, to, to smolter the, the DCW guys and have a feud with them on pay-per-view yeah. with Tommy Dreamer and... So it, it, a lot of things that happened down there that, you know, pretty much changed the whole course of wrestling. I think WWF in 1996, they ran a pay-per-view and it was called um, In Your House Mind Games. Yep. And that was the first time when they went to Philadelphia, they knew they were going to have a hard time with that crowd. And they brought ECW out at the pre-show. And they, Dreamer, Sandman, and Heyman, I want to say, right? Yes, and they, and they uh, bothered uh, Savio Vega and John Layfield in their in their matchup, I believe. Yep. And that's kind of like, whoa, you know, that's when Vince started taking the edge and uh, pushing some of the characters and, and doing the blend of face and heel and shades of gray, mm-hmm. stuff that you didn't think about, you know, that you wanted to see hot shot and angles on TV now, no more... Uh, no more uh, jobber against main guys because 
Philly was, was chomping on the doors and getting the fans going, and they wanted to see a little more aggressive action. So it was a little interesting to watch after that and the way it all shaped out and years later how it ended. Do you think that the, 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 the city of Philadelphia being such a very blue-collar town, you know, people look at it and they obviously the Rocky statue still sits in the city to this day and that was where that movie was filmed and, you know, people associate the Rocky movie with Philadelphia, at least the first one, and the story of, you know, rags to riches rocky balboa and his boxing story do you think that grittiness of philadelphia like do you do you think that it, it it meshed well with the the style of wrestling that ecw was do you think if he do you think ecw could have had a good start somewhere else or do you think philadelphia had to be the spot philadelphia was the perfect spot and yeah. it, it worked well because uh it's exactly how you put it there, there's a. It was a blue collar. Then the tickets for sale were fifteen dollars, maybe mm-hmm. twenty dollars to go see a show. You're getting your money's worth. Where you're going to a Spectrum for fifty, sixty dollars, or whatever it was at the time. Yeah. So you're getting a better deal to go into a smaller building and watch a local promotion with a lot of local talent that is interacting with you in and out of the the show. So you're getting to see all this, and they're they're pouring their heart out, even though the wrestling might not have stood up if you watch it now. It might not be the greatest yeah. <laughs> at all. Yeah. But it, it the drew. Energy. The energy was there. I mean, yeah. you you watch. Uh, we were talking about Memphis. You watched the way their wrestling wasn't that exciting. No. A Jerry Lawler match was not very exciting. But the energy is what it's all about, yep. and getting the crowd in the right. You know, just getting them behind you. I think that um, the fans down there embraced ECW they were there all the time you had the same guys in the same seats you had the chance before the show you had a um you know the girls would get harassed and you know S-U-L-T's this that but you know sucked it they they were doing it all and it was encouraged yeah so people are you know don't bring your kids to ECW (laughs) what wrestling promotion is that you go to WWE there's mothers with their five-year-old on the lap this wasn't happening. No, this, no, in this, no. God, no. You'd go into the ECW arena in the August, and it would be 110 degrees in there. I remember taking my shirt off and just holding it in my hand because it was soaking <laughs> wet and watching the second half of the, the show. With, yes, you had to because you could not handle it. Yeah. There was so much humidity in the air. And just uh, electric crowd, if you want to put it that way. And, and you had people that were heavily involved in the business covering ECW you know, today Mike Johnson was a was a huge uh, part of ECW. He's a reporter for PW Insider. I'm sure everybody knows who he is. Yep. But what's up, he Mike? If you're it. listening, absolutely. He lived for ECW, um, and he covered it very well. And he brought attention to it, and he supported. It. He went to all the pay per views. He promoted it. He worked on the website towards it. And that exposure, solely from from him and Dave Shear and everybody else was uh, what really got the interest going and the popularity had run. If another uh, radio show was uh, covering Memphis wrestling like that and talked about how great they were and what they were doing and they had that kind of area, they would have been just as strong too probably if they Mm -hmm. had all that promotion behind them. So Mike was a big fan of it, never missed a show, and he, he promoted the heck out of them, became friends with a lot of the people there. And they did. they went on to... For a number of years, I yeah, mean, they drew some big shows. Now, do you? I, I mentioned this in my statement earlier, and I'd like to get your take on it. Um, do you think that, um, as 
as polar opposite as ECW and Memphis Wrestling were in terms of content, there was a grittiness about them both that kind of seemed very similar. Do you think that there was some elements of ECW that was influenced by Memphis Wrestling? Absolutely. The seriousness of uh, Memphis Wrestling, the promos and 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 the the angles mm-hmm. were a part of ECW. Um, Memphis ran a lot more of the the comedy stuff though. You you would see the Halloween show would have all the wrestlers on their TV show in costumes having a masquerade battle royal. That silliness wasn't happening ECW. Nine one one was gonna choke slam anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So so that that's what that's the Philly crowd as opposed to the Memphis crowd, which would have absorbed anything. Uh, but yes, there was a. Serious feuds. When you watch some of the Memphis stuff, and you know, you saw Tommy Rich and Austin Idol shaving Jerry Lawler's head in a cage. Uh, those are the type of things that that ECW, when Heyman was there, took with him mm-hmm. over to Philadelphia and brought some realism and some emotion, and and made you want to see things for a reason and got you vested into believing what you're seeing because of how you accept it. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. You brought up the energy of that crowd. I feel like in some of the, a number of these cities, each crowd's energy and the reaction sounded different. So like for, and you can elaborate on this, but like in Dallas, when like the Von Ericks were getting beat down by whoever it was, because anybody that wrestled the Von Ericks were, were evil. And you would hear those girls just the screaming, like, like they were watching their boyfriends getting murdered right in front of their <laughs> eyes. And you even saw some of that. You even heard that. Like, it was almost like this. each city had a different sound and different reactions. So, like, if the Von Eriks were, were winning and had the upper hand, or if they were losing and they were getting destroyed in the ring by God knows who, those girls just... You felt like you were at like a Beatles concert, you know, like you were, I'm sure you've mm-hmm. seen footage of the Beatles before and the, 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 the reactions they'd get on television and when they first came to America mm-hmm. and the girls go screaming from, that's what it sounded like watching, you know, the Sportatorium in Dallas, Texas for world class. But the same thing for Memphis too. Lawler kind of had that, that, that vibe as well. Whereas then you go the polar opposite. You didn't have that in ECW. You probably no. could count maybe one, you know, you probably count the amount of females in that arena on one hand uh, from, from, from your experience, with the exception of the talent in the ring, but as fans. Um, and and the, the, the sounds of Philadelphia were, you know, 18 to 34-year-old males, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of fuck yous and, you know, she's a crack whore and, 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 and things like that. But the sounds of the different cities and the fans that you know are watching that always kind of fascinated me so when i always thought like dallas texas sportatorium and like hot when they say like dallas crowds were hot i think of those girls yes that were just screaming bloody murder that you know the von erics were either winning or losting or the the rock and roll express or ricky ricky uh ricky steamboat yeah they would just get in tito santana even had a lot of emotion really but you look at Philadelphia, and there was no baby face. Yeah, everybody that was a good guy wrestler was a heel anyway. Really so yeah. there was never that capture for any sympathy. Yeah, they just wanted to see Terry Funk whip or burn or, yeah. or kick the shit out of whoever he's fighting uh-huh. or Cactus Jack um, jump off something. Or you know, they wanted to see Shane Douglas 
uh, swear and give the middle finger and cut promos. They didn't, even though these were the the face guys of the promotion and 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 leading a, a lot of the popularity. They didn't want to see them doing nice things to anybody. They wanted yeah. to see them kick ass. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, Philadelphia definitely a a city that, and we talked about it earlier. How like Toronto had that bizarro world kind of feel where the the audience was. You know, doing the complete opposite of what you would expect. They were cheering the bad guys and they were, you know, booing the good guys. But a lot of that really was was embellished more in ECW and in Philadelphia as a whole. And even to this day, um, if you if you watch, you know, current day wrestling, especially WWE, when they run through Philadelphia, like for instance that Royal Rumble a couple of years ago when Roman Reigns won, Roman Reigns is portrayed on television as a good guy and the Philadelphia audience was not buying it. And when he won that Royal Rumble, they were not very kind to him or, you know, the, and the presentation showed on television just how poorly they felt about that decision. We also got to look at the promotions that have run the ECW arena and area in the last 10, 15 years, uh, you got combat zone wrestling mm-hmm. and that's blood and guts and jumping off trailers into tables and blowing up light bulbs and everything yeah. else. And, you know, they, so the fans are seeing that and the ring of honor was bringing yeah. the skillful matches of Colt Cabana and, and CM Punk and, and Samoa Joe and Daniel Bryan. So you've got all these different aspects of, of wrestling promotions in the area, the Philly fans got spoiled, so there was always that appetite for better and more and yep. more. And to this day, it is um, it, it's insane what the expectations are for a crowd. I remember Mick Foley when he was in ECW, he hated the crowd, and he got to the point where he was killing himself, and he said, "I'm not going to do this anymore." And he used to do matches and hold a headlock for about five minutes and make the fans get pissed off because he wanted to piss them off. Yeah. That's that's what got him over the best as a heel, yeah. is, is, is totally shitting on the crowd and telling them that they suck and that they, they you know the things he's done for them they don't appreciate. Yeah. And that's the crowd that, to this day, because they've seen so much, and it's not their fault, it's just the exposure. It's like anything else. Um, when they run a building, you know, no matter where it is, any promotion – after a few years, even we'll just say TNA for for now. Look what happened in Orlando. Orlando that yeah. that running uh, the zone there in in, Disney, in our, Universal, our Universal yeah. Studio, the crowds now they're getting sick of it. Yep. You know, you can only get the freebies, and you're getting a base audience of 300 people now, and it, they, they don't care. You got to tour around, and you got to change. So the Philly crowd, they'd seen so much, mm-hmm. and every single weekend the building's booked with another promotion. So. It's just hard to top the level, and that's why they're so bitter if they don't see what they see. That same attitude, I think, was kind of adopted with the final city in this this first part of our famous wrestling cities here on Kicking Out of Two, and that's New York City, closest to us here in Connecticut. Uh, you know, they say in the entertainment world, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere, and New York as a kid for me watching wrestling i grew up on you know wwf my first introduction to wrestling was hulk hogan in 1986 87 and i always looked at wwf wrestling you know madison square garden in new york city as like the central location where the and this was obviously before i got you know exposure to other wrestling organizations but that was where you went to go see wrestling was at madison square garden new york city you know hulk hogan beating the sheik you know iron sheik in madison square garden for his first world wrestling federation title but that new york you know in later years 
the New York audience has seemed to have adapted that same attitude that ECW has where they are very vocal about their wrestling and what they like and what they don't like. Um, before we get into some of our memories of New York City, Madison Square Garden, uh, do you think that the New York audience... Um, when do you think the New York audience kind of adapted to that to that attitude of you know being very um, vocal about their wrestling, like Philadelphia? I just think that as as time has moved on, it, it that audience because of the way the city's run and the vibe and just so many people that it was inevitable to happen no matter what. I don't mm-hmm. think that anything transitioned them. I don't think there's a reason for it. Yeah. I just think that today the way that everything's technic technology is going and and uh, what they're expecting to see, I think that the smarter fans are now following wrestling smarter than they've ever been before. The popularity's getting so high that you know the, the people that pay the money are the ones that are going to get in the building and closest to the action because they want to s- get the good seats and, and see everybody. So I think that a lot of things have just trans- transgressed into what we have today. And you know, it's, it's, the popularity of wrestling is what's making it be so that the fans are doing what they're doing yeah the the casual fan they don't go to shows as much anymore if they're a hot show because they can't afford it yep. or they don't even get a chance to get a ticket anymore yeah. because the buildings are selling out so fast yeah. on the indie level and you know wwf is wwe now is they're running shows but you to bring your your you and your two kids down there whatever you have new york city you, yeah, you might you might have to spend some money yeah <laughs> you, you're better off to get it on WWE network for 9.99 or something yeah no so, you're, you're exactly so right. you got a very very smart base traveling from across the world and and wrestlemania crowds will tell you that the, the people that come are from every single country practically yeah so that's what that's where we're at now and, and new york is so centrally located to the world and Madison Square Garden, for instance, is, is the easiest place to get to through the subway system. So there's there's a lot of people that could easily get into there traveling in. And I just think that the the way a New York crowd is, you see with the Yankees and other sports teams, they've they've adapted uh, even a tougher mm-hmm. <laughs> almost at times attitude. Not not hostile at all as as a Philly fan would be described as. But um, they, they've got a very tough mentality for a New York uh, audience, and, yeah. and and that's just the way it's going. And you've and you've been to the Garden on a number of occasions, correct? Yes. Yeah. And uh, it's it's fun it's fun to go down there, and and the people are they're so different from any show that I would go to anywhere else except Philadelphia, because Philadelphia kind of would be like that as well. But um, the Garden shows they. Uh, they have the the normal fans that would always go there. You, you see many of the regulars, yep. and like they've seen a lot of the stuff already because it's just you know you have to top this, you have to top that now because they, the expectations are always high. Mm-hmm. Your your first memory of uh, going to Madison Square Garden, New Russell, York City, WrestleMania nine was uh, the first time I had actually traveled into the building. And uh, you mean WrestleMania ten. Uh, Nine right. was at Caesars. You're right. You're right. WrestleMania 10. Excuse me. Sorry. That's the big. Uh, <laughs> that was a match where uh, I believe uh, the first ladder match I ever saw Sean, live. Sean and Razor. Sean and Razor, and uh, you know you had the I think it was Brett versus Owen. Yeah. What a match to Open start the a card, show. Yeah. Uh, I was sitting in the nosebleed, and I I really did have a nose bleeding. By the end of the show, it was so high, but it was an amazing uh, show to go to, to, to watch, even though you look back at it now, and other than a couple great matches, you're like, whoa, 
there's a three-hour show. It's nothing like today's spectacles. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was my first time, and I was a kid, and I had taken the bus that, or the train down, and we got the you know a pretty cheap seat for <laughs> for WrestleMania. But it was amazing to go to. There was there was no fan fest. There was there was nothing. It was just WrestleMania. That was it. And I, I remember going back a couple other times, and you know the garden would still be sold out. Yep. You know? And it's an amazing feeling when you have a, an audience that is so electric for you know everything going on. I think uh, when Hogan and Flair was was fighting, those were some good crowds in the '90s. Piper was there. You still had that, like, this is Madison Square Garden. The television camera is in there right there. It's going to be broadcast on the MSG network. It always is. Yeah. You know, that kind of importance. uh, And you hear the stories that Vince McMahon is always in the back and never misses the God and show because that's the parameter that he judges the business by and how the garden sells out. Yep. So and that's where the old Capital Sports offices used to be back in the day. They used to be running right out of there when Bruno was in the territory. So the history is there and the importance is there, and you can never look back. And I think nowadays we're having, uh, you know, Ring of Honor and New Japan are coming, and you know the the grip is starting to be lost a little bit by yeah. uh, the, the exclusive Titan. That's okay though. I'm, I'm, that's I'm, fine. I'm cool with it. It's not cool with him. No, of course not. <laughs> but, <laughs> even though he'll he'll act like it doesn't matter. <clears throat> But um, yes, New York is. Um, if you're gonna talk about New York, it is the the hotbed of professional wrestling. Always has been since I think the 30s or the 40s. Yep. So the McMahon generation. I think there's four generations now of promoting there, and it's just gonna go on and on. Uh, Triple H and Stephanie are gonna continue yeah. with that. So it's always going to be there. It's always going to be the measurement, and it, it is the most centrally, most famous arena in the world, and and that's true. You know? well, the 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 one interesting thing about New York, not only does it produce the most memories, and we're going to continue with those in, in not only in this episode, but obviously in part two. Um, what's great about New York, like you said, it's centralized to the world, but it only created so many memories in the history of professional wrestling, but there's more than one venue. I mean, everyone remembers Madison Square Garden, but you also have to remember the Manhattan Center. Yes. Uh, you know, the Hammerstein Ballroom, and now Brooklyn with Barclays is, is, is the modern-day version of where WWE produces a lot of their shows, their major shows, like they just did SummerSlam recently. They're going to do WrestleMania in the area, in the tri-state New York, New Jersey area next year. Uh, Do you think that with... Do you think the WWF could have been as successful had they not run New York City in the beginning? I don't think so. Because where else would you have drawn those big crowds with the maybe exception of Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. Um, they were, you know, they would draw in Baltimore. They would go. Uh, yeah, there were some places that they did move into and they did okay. But Madison Square Garden was where they put it all on the line. And I don't think they could put another building as important as MSG and actually get the full houses and, and keep the interest going. 
with uh, you know, where where could you possibly do that? You just can't say that the Capital Center in Landover, Maryland, is the yeah. hub of professional wrestling. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> New York City doesn't have that ring to it. Yeah. Now New York City, uh, plus that's that's the richest venue to run too. Yep. And even to this day, it's it's like two hundred thousand dollars to rent as opposed to the Barclays Center, which might be one hundred and ten or one hundred and fifty or something really? like that. And that's why. They don't run there as much, and yeah. they run the Barclays Center because the deals for a new building like that to get WWE into it, they Cheaper. had that they wanted that, and it's yeah. paid off big time. Look at they run all the Summer Slams and everything else Last there few years, yeah. by, by lowering their price. They make out more in the end. Yeah, and uh, Madison Square Garden hasn't hasn't dropped, and that's why Vince has not run them, and that's why other groups are now moving in on it because they're not getting enough events, and they saw yeah. it as an opportunity to do so. So it's just interesting, you know, a lot of times that. The way the business is, if if Madison Square Garden is the measuring stick, that you, you got to try and keep it protected and, and keep going on its legacy, and the history and the memories that we'll talk about in upcoming editions of what has happened in the New York area with all these buildings, because even Hammerstein Ballroom is something that you would say, "Wow, I remember this memory. I remember that memory." This. Yeah. There's just so much in New York that that's that's the central location for everything. To close out to close out this episode, uh, I'll give you one memory personal for me. Um, I'd always wanted to go to Madison Square Garden and see wrestling. Never had the opportunity to um, for a long time. And uh, our friends Ken and Michelle uh, lived in the, uh, the the New Jersey, Southern New Jersey area at the time, and. We decided that we were going to go get tickets to a WWE house show the day after Christmas. Usually they run the Northeast area. Um, you know, they kind of do like the bigger cities like Chicago, uh, New York, Hartford. They'll run maybe Boston, stuff like that. Like, you know, they do the loop after Christmas and the New Year's. And um, they ran the Garden. It was in 2010. And it was like right after the... Uh, I think they were doing, there was the Nexus angle yes. and it was, yeah, it was like going into 2011 and it was, a, it was a live event. It was not TV and, um, there was a blizzard in New York city and the show was sold out in terms of the amount of tickets they sold, but, um, they probably three quarters of it was filled up even in a blizzard like when we got off the train like we couldn't even see like two feet in front of us that's how much snow wow. there was in new york city like i, I could show you pictures on facebook and i'll, I'll post the pictures on facebook and uh kicking out of two facebook.com forward slash kicking out of two as well as on our twitter at kicking out two k-i-c-k-n-o-u-t and the number two uh yeah it was um an interesting it was main evented by uh john cena and wade barrett in a steel cage and um there was a special Piper's Pit. It was Roddy Piper and Tito Santana. And they had like a battle royal to determine who was going to face, I think, the Intercontinental Champion. Standard matches that you kind of saw on TV. They kind of kept the storylines. Um, but being that it was a house show, it was nothing special. Um, it was my first time in the garden. So when I walked in that building, you know, you know me, big wrestling fan. I was like... Hulk Hogan. I'm just list. I'm like listing off everything that took place in that building when I was a kid that I watched on TV. Hulk Hogan won the WWF Championship January 23rd, 1984. The first ladder match was here. WrestleMania 20 was here. Um, you know all these different memories that just like you know. 
where I'm, you know, overloading my brain. I'm just like in my head and to the point where like I'm kind of saying this stuff out loud. My brother's like, are you like walk like are you, he's like, you're really marking out right now. Like, yes. And I was because like I had never been I had never been to the garden and it was just something that like I had to do as a wrestling fan. And we sat. um we know you know you know the main entrance that it was on the hard camera when you'd watch a garden show. Um, so if you're wa- if you're looking at the hard camera, um, let's say watching WrestleMania 10, mm-hmm. we were to the we were to the the right okay. on the, on the television screen, and we were probably about like 13 or 14 rows on the floor. Um, but it was a fun show nonetheless. It's interesting that. Um, that show also had uh, Nunzio from ECW. He was trying out as a referee on that house show. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, when he when he was doing his time as a you referee. You were friends with him at the time as well, were you not? I didn't know him. Ken did because okay. Ken's um, uh, neighbors with him. They live on the same block or something like that. So, uh, you know, and, and Ken's, you know, become more friendly with him over the years. But, um, yeah, a story I heard from Nunzio was, was that he almost missed a train to get home because – they stopped the subway just stopped running because of the wow. blizzard because it was so crazy we barely made it out too ourselves to get to um i think it was uh ridgewood new jersey we had to go to so we had to go to hoboken and then take a train from hoboken to to ridgewood but um i'll never forget just the fact that it was like my brother always says it. he goes it's a, it's a great story to tell we trekked in the snow in a blizzard to go see our first madison square garden wwe wrestling show and then of course we did the hall of fame a couple of years later when bruno got in and that was cool because of the history that bruno had in the garden and we yes. will discuss that on our next uh famous wrestling cities episode here on kicking out it too i'd like to thank you very much for uh taking the time with me and uh you know come back for round two i hope well there's definitely going to be a round two there's probably going to be a round three four <laughs> five there's a lot you can talk about with wrestling cities and uh, i'm sure the people that listen here are kicking out it too they they probably got some things that they want to share too so if you have any ideas or any uh subjects you want us to to talk about just uh let us know. Yeah, give us a holler. Slide in our DMs on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. Over on Twitter, give us a follow at kicking out two. Uh, if you guys have some memories of some of these cities that we've discussed, if you've, if you've attended any of these shows or stuff you've watched on TV, by all means, you know, post it on the page on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, we'll be glad to uh, list off some of your memories right here on kicking out at two. And on that note, before we get out of here this week, as Bill and I alluded to just moments ago, we got part two planned for you on this road trip in the form of a bonus show. I know I gave you guys the October schedule on last week's show, and it's pretty jam-packed, but since I'm in the giving mood, part two of this trip is going to continue next week on Monday, October the 8th, 2018, Columbus Day. Bill and I are going to hop back in the car, and we're going to make those towns covering more historical moments in some of the most famous cities in wrestling history. Now, I know some of you folks in the United States have Columbus Day off, and if you're looking for some company while you're cleaning the house or you're going to be raking the leaves that are just starting to fall, then allow us to join you with our geographical trip down pro wrestling memory lane as we make those towns part two over at soundcloud.com and we're not done there because you know that's a bonus show however we're going to get back to our regularly scheduled programming on wednesday october the 10th over at soundcloud.com with our smackdown top 10 list the 1000th episode of smackdown is going to approach in a few weeks and i thought 
that I'd share my personal top 10 moments in the show's almost 20-year history. I also plan to address WWE's very own SmackDown top 10 list and partake in a game of compare and contrast and see how both of those lists have fared. So stay tuned next Wednesday for that. And with that being said, there's no more false finishes. It's time to go home, as they say. This week's show is going down for the three count. And until then, I will see you next week.